Welcome to another edition of the Papa Cast. We are here at Super Bowl 51, New England Patriots taking on the Atlanta Falcons. We are joined by a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, James Lofton. Uh, James, good to visit with you again. James is part of Sirius XM NFL Radio's coverage throughout the course of the week. Westwood One. James is all over the place, but I want to talk to you a little bit about the Hall of Fame sure. and the role uh, that the Hall of Fame made a really smart move to incorporate some Hall of Famers as far as the process is concerned. How did the role for you come about? Well, last year we were asked if we were interested, um, and when I say we, I'm talking about Dan Fouts and myself, and we had a chance last year to sit in the meetings before the votes started. They went to the la- to the first vote, and then we kind of exited. But for 11 hours, I sat there and I listened to them go back and forth about the different candidates, and I watched how prepared they were. And I think when you are on the outside or you are a member who's up for uh, consideration to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, you think, oh, well, they may not know my story. No, they actually know it in great detail. And they are very serious about the assignment. Uh, this year, when they did the preliminary uh, guys, we got a, a book of 96 candidates. And it was bigger than any textbook I had when I was at Stanford. And to, to go through it, to read line by line, to go over all these players, former coaches, a daunting task. Because as you're looking through it, you go, I remember this guy. From history, I know this guy. And there are so many people who are great players. And then to try and whittle it down to 25. And it was interesting. We were supposed to go from 96 to 25. I accidentally sent in 26. And it turned out that there was a tie so we actually did have 26 before we went down to 15. So, you know, maybe I was seeing something that other people didn't see. But just those daunting tasks as you're trying to, to whittle it down and now to go from 15 to 10 to 5 and then also to vote on the three contributors, is uh, it's a lot. You know, I was talking with Rick Goslin from the Dallas Morning News, who's one of the voters, and it really is – a daunting task, and then you think about guys that fell through the cracks um, that get revisited as far as, you know, the Veterans Committee and, and what they have to go through. And I think the general public doesn't really understand the entire process. And, you know, you get down to 15, and I know Peter King has said this many times, you know, when you look at that list of the final 15, you can almost rubber stamp 11 guys automatically, but you can only put five in, and then you get – you know, in a couple of years, Peyton Manning's going to be up. Sure. Um, and then you get guys that jump the line, like when Emmett came up or Jerry Rice comes up. or, or So that puts guys that are Hall of Fame worthy back in line for another year. It really takes a certain mindset, doesn't it, for the guys that are up to really temper expectations because it's not necessarily about their resume, but it's about sort of a stacking order. You know, it's funny. I, I liken it to catch, no catch. And everybody goes, well, do you understand what a catch is? Yes, we know with our eyes what a catch is, but then when you play it back in super slow motion and high definition, oh, the ball did move a little bit when he hit the ground. Oh, he, he, he lost possession as he was going out of bounds, and it jostled a little bit. So with these Hall of Famers, when you look at the 15, there are valid arguments for all 15, but you're only going to let in five. So you, you go back and you look at them all under that super slow motion, and you go, okay, this guy over this guy right now. And and. You're really saying, you're not saying no, you're just saying not yet. And I think that's, there's a little consolation in that. I went through it, but it's funny. I don't, I don't remember myself 
agonizing over it year after year. I remember the elation that I had when I went in and you kind of like, you know, it's, you know, like when they're pulling your tooth and this is going to hurt, this is going to hurt. And then they pull it out and go, it didn't hurt that much. So for some of the guys who are waiting, you know, it's going to hurt. But when you finally get in, it's well worth it. You know, there's one guy that I feel does not get enough argument. Cliff Branch, who played for the Oakland Raiders in the 70s. He led the league in receiving yards, over 1,000 yards, in a 14-game schedule in an era where defensive players could beat you up the entire length of the field. He averaged over 20 yards a catch. You know, even Drew Pearson led the NFL a couple years in receiving, where I don't think he had more than 55 catches, and that led the league because the rules were different. How hard is it now when they go back and look at the veterans because the numbers are so skewed at the position that you excelled at? You came into the league in 78. But um, when you look at those guys pre-78, the numbers will never match up. It's got to be a lot harder, especially as the voters are getting younger. It, it really is when you start to look at the, the numbers that guys are posting now. And, you know, you look at somebody like Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry, you, you, the fastest guys to 4,000 yards ever. Well, it used to take five or six years to get to 4,000 yards because you have 700 yards one year, 900 the next, and you were – at the top of the heap. And so I think that you there has to be some perspective. When you look at the numbers that Lynn Swan and John Stallworth posted, they weren't phenomenal numbers, but they were guys who were on championship teams. And I, for me, th- that really trumps um, stats. When, you're, when, when I'm looking at guys, I, I look at when you looked at their career over 10, 12-year career, whatever, was there a five, six-year stretch where you considered this guy one of the two, three best at his position? Did he give his team a chance to play for championships? And so you look at those things and you try and temper it a little bit with, with just the stat line. And sometimes when you are on a team that is ultra-successful, you almost get to a saturation point where people look at, well, you, you have enough Dallas Cowboys from that era or you have enough Oakland Raiders from that era. And some of those players who are very integral, like you mentioned, Drew Pearson and Cliff Branch, they they do get passed over a little bit for guys who are playing now. And, and, and you know, now, you know, you talk about a quarterback-driven league. Well, if they're driving guys around, it's the wide receivers, and they're really the beneficiaries because of the stats they are able to put up right now. James, I want to fast forward to the game this week, the Atlanta Falcons and the New England Patriots. And, um, look, New England's got the experience as far as the quarterback and the head coach in this situation. But statistically, if you look back over the last 15 years or so, teams that have more guys that have been in the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl winning quarterback, the Super Bowl winning head coach haven't necessarily won. It doesn't, it's not automatic that the underdog guys have no shot. Do you give the Falcons a legitimate chance to win this game in your mind? Well, in the six Super Bowls in the Belichick-Brady era, the six that they played in have all been one-score games, and you 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 would think that well, wasn't there a thirty-five to ten win that they where they blew somebody out? That has not been the case. So when you just look at that, you look at the track record of the Patriots in the game; they've been in some close games. And when you get to this time of year, you would think that the representative from the AFC and the representative from the NFC would would put up a good game because these neither one of the teams has those glaring deficiencies you you know you might look at the Atlanta Falcons and say well they have a lot of youth on defense they gave up 406 points during the regular season but the second half of the season 
they kind of turned the corner defensively. Now, granted, they played some teams in their own division that weren't great offensive teams, but they did play better. And then to beat Seattle in the playoffs, to beat Green Bay, to have those last games in the Georgia Dome. First, you thought the game against Seattle was going to be the last game because you figured they'd go play the Dallas Cowboys the next week. Well, that script changes when Green Bay defeats them and they come in, and then you play the final game in the Georgia Dome. So there's, there's some moment, momentum with Atlanta. There's some newness, and um, you know, just waiting to see what happens in the big moments of the game. You know, that play at the end of the first half, the play in the start of the third quarter, down the stretch in the fourth quarter. Who can make those plays? You know, you've been embedded with the Falcons the last couple of weeks with Westwood One. You've seen them up close. My big question is, how does New England, with their linebackers, their DBs, and maybe even a defensive end here or there, how do they cover the Falcons' backs coming out of the backfield? Because, look, Julio Jones is probably going to get his because, he, he, first of all, he makes catches on contested throws. So even if the Patriots have him covered – he goes and gets the ball. And maybe they could limit his yards after the catch and he doesn't take one for 65 and a score, but I believe he's going to get his numbers. The question is, how does New England control the, the passes to the backs, which have been so effective for Dan Quinn and Kyle Shanahan? I remember when, when my wife and I first had kids and you, you have that first kid and you're, you're getting ready for a road trip and you just pack everything in the car that you can. I think the Patriots are going to do that a little bit. They are going to have a first quarter game plan, a second quarter game plan, a third quarter game plan defensively so that it's, it's constantly evolving so that the Atlanta Falcons cannot go back to the bench and say, hey, this is what they did the last series. This is how we're going to attack them. And then all of a sudden there's a different coverage. There's a different type of look. There's different personnel out there. So it's going to be a constant change from the Patriots during the course of the game, and it's going to be changes that they practice. It's not going to be something that they draw up in the dirt. So I think that's going to be where they're going to try and be one step ahead of Kyle Shanahan. It's funny you mention that because David Deal, who won two Super Bowls against the Patriots with the Giants, talked about in Super Bowl 46, they were running it down the Patriots' throat. And he said in the second half, the Patriots came out in a 4-3, a four-man front, which we had not seen from them at all, and it slowed down the giant run game. It got Brady and the offense on the field more, and they got in a rhythm, and it got that game tight. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Definitely. Uh, we always talk about Bill Belichick being a mastermind, and, and I think w w genius doesn't just see down the road, but they see down the road and around the corner. And that's what the Patriots have been able to do. Like I said, they've been in tight ball games. Some they've won, some they haven't, but they've just been the constant. You know, we think of an, an era in pro football, you know, a great era being four to six years. We're at year 15 now, so it's – it's been a while. 24-9 Tom Brady is in the postseason, which is incredible. How do you think New England will attack Atlanta's defense? Um, I, I have a – well, I want to hear what you think. Well, it, you, you have the LeGarrette Blunt where we're going to pound it at you. You have uh, spread it out uh, where you have a fullback and LeGarrette Blunt in the game, and then you put those guys, flank them way outside of all the receivers. And you say, okay, are you going to put your, your great speedy linebackers out there on two guys that we're not going to throw the ball to and we'll eat you up inside? So they can do a lot of different things, and I think that's, that's the key to every team. Every team has a big playbook. But the way that they are able to implement players in and to get favorable matchups, uh, I still haven't seen anybody who can really cover Julian Edelman on the five- to six-yard crossing route, option route. And if you don't, 
and you allow him to run after the catch or break one tackle because it's man-to-man coverage, you turn a five-yard pass into a 20-yard gain. You played in a Super Bowl. What's it like as a player when you know that you're kind of on the doorstep of doing something from a team standpoint that makes you immortal? Um, how do you manage the expectation? How do you manage the emotion? What, what's it? Take us onto the field and what it's like to participate in one of these. I remember Ahmad Rashad, who played for the Minnesota Vikings, saying about the Super Bowl that he was never able to run faster or jump higher. But that was just in pregame warm-ups. He was so excited. And so you've got to temper that and realize it is a game. It's a 60-minute game. You still have to get 10 yards to get a first down. And you have to really break it down because if you think about the historical impact of the game, if you think about the final outcome, you, you get caught up in not playing the game and not doing your best. Final question. I like to end these podcasts this way. What's your favorite cheat meal? Because you're in great shape. You look like you could still play. What's your favorite cheat meal, James Lofton? Favorite cheat meal is probably just a big double cheeseburger with uh, some avocado on it, pepper jack cheese, a few jalapenos, but not overly done, and believe it or not, some barbecue sauce. I believe it. It's a nice match. Okay, so now here's what we do. We take your burgers with the jalapeno just a little bit and avocado, and we bring them in a room on a tray. And now we get to lock the door, and you get to invite three people, any three people in the history of the world. It could be sports, it could be politics, it could be music. And whatever conversation goes on in this room for as long as you want with your favorite cheat meal, the content of that conversation will never leave that room, never go to the press, anybody. Who would be the three people that James Lofton would love to pick the brain of? Well, that, that's so tough. Um from a historical content, uh, maybe you'd like to sit around with Martin Luther King and find out, you know, if if he had a plan or if he was just going with the flow because his movement was so great. Um, I like our 44th president, Barack Obama. And then I have to go with the guy who took me to Super Bowl One, my dad. Um, because you don't, as an adult, get to turn back the clock and see your parent as your peer and maybe I'd like to take him at when he was 45 years of age and just to see what he was going through trying to raise four kids on his own as a single parent so I take those three awesome stuff James we appreciate a couple minutes enjoy the week bet Bob thanks James Lofton Hall of Famer joining us on this edition of the Papa Cast.